Hello and welcome to What Divines Us. You're listening to Rabbi Abram Goodstein. And hi, I'm Reverend Matthew Schultz. And we're going to argue about religion to you. We're going to argue. <laughs> we're going to fight tooth and nail. <laughs> Only one religion can win. <laughs> yes, yeah it's, yeah, it's much more graphic here than you think in, a, in a What Divines Us Sanctuary. Oh my gosh, he's got a knife. <laughs> no, no. Okay. Well, anyways, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about our religion and uh, one of our favorite subjects. And so we're, we have three different segments for you today. Our first segment, as you may already know, is called Religion 101. And we decided for this one, we're gonna talk a little bit about what we call our Bibles. Uh, so, uh, Matt, are you? Am I going first? Or are you going first this time? Uh, well, why don't I go first? Because I think it, my part is shorter, and I have questions to, to, to ask you to teach me about. Um, we just call our Bible the Bible, and so that's really simple and easy, which I think is probably a bit presumptive on our part. You know, it's the, the Bible. book. <laughs> you know, and we call the Hebrew Scriptures. We call the Old Testament, and I guess maybe that's my first question for you. Someone told me once that might be insulting. Oh, I'm not. I'm never insulted by hearing the okay. Old Testament. It's just not what we call. Right. What we call it. We don't feel we, that. We could call I mean, it like I know we Testament are, classic. Well, <laughs> yeah, I know. We're, we're, I know we are an old religion. We just don't feel like an old religion. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, 4,000 is the new 2,000. That's, yeah. Uh, we're, we're like that grandma that says they're always 25 whenever yeah. their birthday. That's a weird. Yeah. And and so then we call the New Testament would be the Gospels and the Epistles and, and the Book of Revelation, which is, you know, just the second part of the Bible, which I think is only about... A quarter of the length of the rest of it. I don't. I don't do numbers much, and that depends on which books. Unless you put you're in, in the book of Numbers in the Bible. Uh, I, you know, I try to avoid <laughs> that book because it's it's hard to get through. Uh-huh. So that we just call them all together collectively the Bible, and it's discouraging to me sometimes to see how many Christians are not at all familiar with the book. And you'll find people saying to, to others, I believe that is the word of God. And then you come later to discover that this individual has not even read it. And I could see doing one or the other. You could either say this is the word of God and therefore it's worth reading. Or you could say, I don't believe it is the word of God and then take a pass on reading it. But how could you do one and not the other? I, that's kind of crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, well, when we get into my area, I'll tell you yeah. a little bit how it's confusing for us as, as well. Well, let's get into your area then. Um, I right before we started recording, I mentioned the word Pentateuch, and you said that's not even in your in your. It's not in my. It's, it's not something that I ever say. Yeah. I don't ever say Pentateuch. That's kind of um, funny. Which I, I don't know what it means. Five something. I think it just means the five books. Yeah, five books, and yeah. I'm trying to remember when I even heard it first. It must have been back when I was a kid. So uh, I was raised. Catholic, so maybe it's part of a more Catholic uh, vocabulary. I don't know. But would you call what would you call the first five books? Okay, so glad you asked. <laughs> oh man, that's gonna take a while to answer that question. Uh, so first of all, we have what's called a Torah. Now, mm-hmm. uh, you can't picture a book when I say Torah because too late. I did. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, you can't. I literally have a book. I have lots of books called Torah. But the reality is that the Torah really, for us, is a scroll. It's a really big, awkward scroll. Mm -hmm. It's made out of animal parchment and wooden dowels. And it contains the five books of the Bible, the first five books in Hebrew, without vowels. Right. It's one of, you know, if, say our synagogue is on fire, the first thing you save is other people, of course. Yeah. The second thing you save is the Torah. It's one of our most holy objects. May I interrupt you? But I remember hearing the story of the particular Torah you have at 
congregation about right, so long. Right. Can you share that story? Yeah, here? yeah, yeah. We, we are honored to be home to a Holocaust survivor that is a Torah, a mm-hmm. Torah that survived the Holocaust. Uh, we are the farthest north owners of a Holocaust. We don't really own it, though. It's on loan, okay. um, as many of them are. But yes, yeah. it came from uh, which was once called Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. Sure. Um, and it was, and, it, and at one point, the Germans collected a bunch of Torahs to use for their museum that they were going to show for all the, the, the dead civilization of Judaism. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And then it was found, all this whole trove of, of Torot, Plural of Torah, sure. Were found, and then and then some of them were restored, some of them were not restored, mm-hmm. and then they were sent off to, to different homes and different synagogues throughout mm-hmm. the world. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's that's something. I don't even know what the word is for that. That's, <laughs> it is it's mo- it's moving. It's, it's something. Yeah. We're yeah, we're we're honored to be a home of it. Yeah, so we have so we have three. Most congregations have three uh, minimum. There's a whole. Thing about that, I don't want to go into too quick detail, but yeah, <laughs> okay. um, sometimes you have to open up all three at one for one Shabbat. Or and another. do you actually read from this scroll? Uh, well, so yes, you. Um, I don't open it up every week, and in fact, I've opened it up in a while only because of thanks to COVID. Mm-hmm. But yes, you're supposed to read it every week. You're supposed to chant it. Actually, you don't just read it; you chant it. Oh, sure. But my question in particular was with with an item of historical significance like that. I didn't know if you would keep it under a glass case or something. But this is actually in use. Yeah. Well, yes. Okay. Uh, the way Torahs are designed is they like to be used. Okay. You have to get air into them to huh. keep them going. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So so every once in a while we'll, we'll actually we'll air it out. We don't use it as much because it is one of our most unwieldy and heavy, and and also the the, the parchment is very thin. Torah, Torah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I joke whenever someone holds a Torah, I joke it's awkward and big, just like Judaism. <laughs> That's yeah. good. I like <laughs> yeah. It. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so so it contains our five books. And, and, and like, so we have a tradition of, of chanting it. Uh, there's different kinds of chants depending on region and sort of what you're into. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yes, so it's something that you sing. You sing the Torah when, when okay. you look at it. But, that, but yes, I also have like many books called Torah that are actually in book form. Mm-hmm. I, often with lots of commentary that I use mm-hmm. you know, to, mm-hmm. to do, to research and to learn. Uh, but we also have another word, chumash. Uh, chumash simply means five okay. in Hebrew, and it's another word for Torah. Oh, so they're just synonyms. That's, okay. They're not, though, because you, oh. you'll, you'll never call the scroll Torah a chumash. No one will ever gotcha. say that. Okay. If you have a book, it's a chumash. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. Um, and then, but it gets more confusing from there because that's just the first five books of yeah. the Bible. By the way, I say the Bible, too. Okay. Matt. I don't, I don't usually mean New Testament when I say the Bible. Figured, but yeah. But I do uh-huh. say the Bible. Uh, and uh, we have other, of course, books in the Bible besides the first five. Right. And we call the rest of it the Tanakh. Okay. So it's actually an, an anagram. It's Tanakh is Torah. The N in Tanakh mm-hmm. is a Nevi'im. And the K in Tanakh, the N there, is... Uh, you didn't rabbi. know there was going to be a quiz I, today. I'm losing some rabbi points right now. <laughs> Ketuvim, the writings. Ketuvim. Okay. Yes, yes. So that what was the second word the, with a, for the letter N? Oh, N, uh, Nivim, uh, uh, prophets. For the prophets. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. so, so you have, we use you have those. Torah, writing, Torah, prophets, writings. And we use those same divisions just with different names. Yeah. So, okay. Although we might have one called the historical section and then the, the wisdom 
instead of writings, I'm assuming we would call the wisdom books. Yeah, like um, wisdom literature. And they tend to be like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Job, Psalms would be in mm, there. All those fun ones. Job and Ecclesiastes are my favorite by <laughs> yeah. far. Funny, we call Ecclesiastes Kohelet. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I think it's just the Latinized. Well, I, we just I feel use, like we still call Job, Job, though. Weird. Weird how those things change. It's just so succinct. It's yeah. a great word. Yeah. But I think Ecclesiastes is just the Latinized version of, of Kohelet. So. Yeah, I think you're right. Yes. Okay, so those are our, that's what we, those are our, that's our Bible. That's, when I say nice. Bible, I'm referring to Tanakh. Okay. I'm not just referring to, to, to just the Torah. I'm referring to the whole, what, what many Christians refer to as the Old Testament. Well, then I think the, the words that I hear in those same contexts, you know, used in, com, in conjunction with some of those words that I don't quite have a grasp on what they mean are Midrash and Talmud. Mm. Can you mm. inform me on those? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. So Midrash, let's start there. Midrash. Now I said Midrash. So my, Midrash is that upstate New York accent or is, is that fine, just me being fine. a doofus? There's a lot of Jews in upstate New York. So. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyways, our Midrash is a kind of commentary of the, of the Torah or the, really of the Tanakh. It's pretty old. Okay. It's a very ancient commentary. And what it does is it, it, it adds its own sort of like rules, right? Mm-hmm. It's so if you look at the Torah, if you, look at the, if you look at the Bible, you can't say the whole thing is rules. Right. You can't say the whole thing is stories mm-hmm. and the whole thing is prose. It's a combination of poetry, rules, narrative, right? right. right? Uh, and and uh, it's a Jewish literature, if you will, has really taken that to the next level in its, in, in its writings after the Bible. It doesn't it doesn't define things like you would see like a law code, mm-hmm. right? It writes out its rules and laws a little bit like the way the Bible does in that there's the smattering of everything yeah. kind of within it. And so the Midrash is a commentary based off of chapter and verse of the Tanakh. Okay. So, you know, you know so Breshi, which means in the beginning, mm-hmm. chap, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that, that verse 1 has, you'd see that verse, then you'd see tons of commentary. Yeah. And that's the Midrash commentating on that verse, either making new rules mm-hmm. to update the rules that are, that are in there or developing new stories to talk about what's going on mm-hmm. and new thoughts. So that's sort of what the Midrash is. So it cer- certainly uses uh, the Bible, but it, but it isn't, it isn't canonized the way the Bible That was, was. my next question. Yeah. Like you, you get a lot of debates about the authority of Scripture and yeah, what's yeah. in and what's out. It doesn't have the It doesn't have that same authority. As a, okay. It doesn't have the weight. But it would have more weight than if... I just decided to weigh in on what I thought it meant. Yeah. You would say, well, Matt says this, but the Midrash says that, so we're going with the Midrash because it's smarter. <laughs> well, so in rabbinic literature, which Midrash is part of, uh-huh. there's this idea that the, the oldest thing is always the wisest, right? You're always, okay. you're always deferential to an older saying. Even if the older saying isn't correct, you find a way to make it right. What do you mean? So it's not always, I mean, like sometimes something, even just because someone is old, Right? This is something as old doesn't mean it's right. It's, it's the right thing. But if, you ha- if you're deferential to something that's older, right, to an older writing than uh-huh. yours, you say, this is correct, except maybe they also meant this, right? So, I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this yeah, one. But so yeah. you're, but you're just trying to pay respect to the age of it, even if you're going to then. You, you mentioned the weight it. of authority. Yeah. Uh-huh. The weight of authority is chronological in Judaism. The, hmm. the, the oldest thing being the Bible, and anything that's that's older than what we're writing now has more authority. But you also said that within Midrash there were new rules 
Yeah, oh, yeah. And new interpretations, did yeah. they then overturn the old? And if so, does that mean that older is not more authoritative? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you have to, this is why Jews love to argue. Yeah, you're starting, sure. you're starting yeah. to get it. <laughs> Yeah, there's actually two terms. Um, it's uh, it's their Hebrew, the Brita and the Rabbanan. The okay. means it came from the Torah. That means that we have to follow it. The right. means it came from the rabbis. It's important, but not as important as, as the Torah. Okay. So if ever a rule has to follow, fall, and it, it always falls towards the Brita, the Torah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, anyways, you mentioned Talmud. Yeah. So, Talmud is actually two works. Okay. And it, it's a work called the Mishnah. And the Gemara put together. Okay. And so the mish, so 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 the problem with the midrash is that all the rulings are organized by chapter and verse, mm-hmm. which is a horrible way to organize a topic, right? If you yeah, want to say, yeah. what are the rules of the first fruits again that the midrash developed? Mm-hmm. You have to think of well, where is the verses about the first fruits, and I have to figure, remember that, is, and maybe hopefully I find it there, mm-hmm. but maybe somewhere else totally random because they you know this yeah yeah. So the Mishnah is organized by topic instead of by, you know, chapter and verse. Mm -hmm. But the content of the Mishnah is completely different than the content of the Midrash. They aren't the same thing reorganized. It's all new content. Good to know. Yeah. And once again, it's a series of stories and rulings and laws and and all the above. Okay. It's not organized in a way that makes a sense of when to start. Like, it doesn't start here and there. Yeah. It feels more circular than that. It just kind of goes. And you find a way to plop in and to learn more about it. You find a what? You just, if you want to learn more about Mishnah, you just got to find something you think you might like and start reading and see what happens. Okay, that's fascinating. Yeah. Huh. I can't tell you, oh, start here. This is, where, this is where it starts. Yeah, yeah. Just like, you know, it's this idea that Jews have been arguing for forever. You know, you're always in the middle of an argument when it comes to Judaism. I, I hope this isn't too esoteric, but have you seen the movie Arrival? It's a science fiction yes, movie. Yes. How with, their language. Amy, Ad- Amy Adams. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, pause now. But one of the big reveals language. is they have circular language. Yeah. And that blew my mind away. And I love it. Yeah. How their own wisdom was circular like that. Yeah. And I wonder... If whoever wrote that movie drew from what you're just Maybe, saying, too. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but so but so the Gomorrah is the commentary on the Mishnah. Wow, okay. So right. so you have the Mishnah, which is new content. Mm-hmm. It's nothing like the Midrash. Right. Um, so it doesn't even have the stories from the Torah, or is it just commentary based on the Torah also, but not the same as the Midrash? Right. Okay. Yes. So I Mishnah, said either or, Mishnah and you said heavily, yes. <laughs> Welcome to Judaism. So, so Mishnah uh, relies heavily on the Torah, mm-hmm. right? It's always referring back to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, but it's also a lots of famous rabbis arguing, and the, and so the Gemara is even more is also famous rabbis arguing, but okay. arguing over the commentary of the Mishnah. This gotcha. is a big and so and so. This is I think. Oh boy, I hope I get this, this date right. But I think it was completed around 300 CE. And this is a big, huge project, mm-hmm. right? To, this Talmud. And there's two of them there's a Babylonian Talmud, and then there's a, like the Jerusalem Talmud. Okay. And they were kind of done, worked on concurrently. So they both contain, also, they both contain kind of different content. Okay. So some of it overlaps. So when I consider the, the formation, of the Bible, it of course took place over thousands of years, right? It wasn't an effort. It just eventually they said, we're going to now decide what's in and what's out. And I guess I was thinking that was how the Midrash was put together. Well, you have to understand this is all started out orally. 
Right. Right. So like, so you had experts who, who memorize these things. Yeah. And then scholars who told them that memorizers, you know, go to this, go to this mm-hmm. thing and t- repeat to me. Yeah. So I said, now add this to it. And then tell the memorizers to add it to it. Yeah, yeah. So you had walking books, essentially. But when you say the, the Mishnah was completed around 300, you the said? The Talmud was completed around 300. The Talmud was, right. okay. Right, was completed much earlier. And was that, like, was there a start time also? Did, was this a, an intentional, discrete effort where they said, we need to create this commentary, yeah, yeah. start today, and we'll finish in with, a decade? With the Mishnah, it's a little clear. We have a guy named Judah Hanasi, which means Judah the Prince, and he was a big person that kind of, like, pushed the Mishnah together. Okay. But it's a lot of voices. It's a lot of things. I, ideally, it's probably there's probably a redactor who mm-hmm. collected a lot of these things and smushed it together. Right, right. The, 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 the Talmud is is the the final sort of generation that worked in the Talmud because it's a multi-generational project. We don't really hear their voice, but we see everything because it's done. all kind of getting. They, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and so they they like they essentially went in and. Um, did all the redacting, did all put it all together, and yeah. then that was the end of the project of this multi-generational project. That makes sense. So, okay. Uh, so, but yeah, that's sort of it. And, and think about every, so, you know, every Gomorrah rabbi, rabbi mentioned the Gomorrah, would mm-hmm. have always felt that the Mishnah rabbis were smarter because they're older, right? Because okay. the Mishnah okay. came first. There's always deference. There's always differences to generations before you okay. in, um, in these works. This, again, is off-topic and a science fiction reference, uh, but Gomorrah, uh-huh. now you hear of the scriptural story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, but also in the Marvel Universe, Gomorrah is one of the main characters in the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, I noticed that. Is, I... it spell, is that some reference to something? Is it spelled the same way, Does, or is it just they thought it sounded cool? <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't. I have no idea. No idea. Well, then I'm not going to become Jewish. <laughs> oh, No. <laughs> Matt, you, you didn't sell me. The last thing I want to do is like, convince you to become <laughs> Jewish, Matt. Oh, that is interesting. Thank you for all that. Yeah, that, yeah. and also none of that really was our Bible. That uh, we don't really consider our, our Talmud to be. Well, that's Bible. a great point. Yeah, and, yeah. And one of the and one of the things unique um, things about the Reform movement mm-hmm. is that the Reform movement has said we no longer hold that the Talmud guides our lives. With oh, every rule, okay. the okay. way that it does for Orthodox Judaism, we find it incredibly important and valuable to read. Right. Uh, but we no longer say this ruling guides everything that we do. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how the Reform Movement has moved away from Orthodox Judaism. There's, I think that's a balance that a lot of religious people, I think we all do it, but we don't all acknowledge the fact that we do it. And you'll hear some arguments when people say, well, you can't just pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to follow. And my only response to that is, that's what everybody does. I don't know anyone that's capable of following. And there was a book called My Year of Biblical Womanhood. I think think it was Rachel Held Evans. That might be correct. And and she tried to follow all the rules in the Bible, uh, particularly for women. And it's just just impossible. I mean, you, you can't have a life that way. And so when it comes to that kind of thing, you're saying Reformed Judaism... And and all those those commentaries that go along, you, you can't follow all of it. You have to find a way that harmonizes with with today's life. I, I know in, in Judaism that kind of critique is from a fear of assimilation. Right? Oh, okay. Like if okay. you don't if you don't follow the Talmud, mm-hmm. if you don't follow the rules of our you know of our tradition, yeah. you're just not going to become Jewish anymore. Interesting is the fear. 
Yeah. Now we've we've got to see evidence of that. Pers- I mean, in the form of we get to see evidence, but I would say the Orthodox people might say, "Well, you're evidence of that already." You know, it just. Yeah. yeah. I, I've had plenty of Orthodox rabbis and, and friends who say, "No, nah, Reform Judaism is just not our cup of tea," but we find it to be totally, yeah. you know, relatable and, and you know part of the Jewish people. But I've met others who have not said that. You know, so it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. This idea of this, this problem of assimilation and this fear of it. Leads to leads to this either this whole embracing of like Jewish law or the whole like it's too much. Right. I can't keep my day job and do all sure. these things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Well, thank um, you. Okay. Was that is that it? Is that the agenda for Religion One Hundred and One? I think we're good on that for now. We yeah. did it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. So our next segment is called Pop Theology. This is where. <laughs> That was not a little sound bite that I made. That yeah, was that's... actually Matt <laughs> popping there, uh, popping and locking. But uh, <laughs> but uh, so um, <laughs> for pop theology, this is where we like to sort of show where religion and sort of popular culture. So I, I would say not mesh, more like collide, clash. sometimes clash. Yeah, yeah and uh, and so if you, if you were able to listen to our last podcast, we sort of focused exclusively on civil religion, and we promised that if we found a civil religion issue uh, in the last podcast. We would, we would bring it up. And lo and behold, we found one really fast. Yeah. And, and so Matt and I are going to argue about an, another civil religion issue that we discovered. And that is a news article about having or printing the Constitution inside of a Bible. Yes. <laughs> we saw it and we thought instantly this would be a great topic to talk about. Uh, so, uh, so Matt, I, I have a feeling you're going to have a lot more to say about this than me. <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you, that in some ways this um, – it's uh, – I think it's called the God Bless America Bible, and it's got the Constitution in it. And I was, again, just this morning was Googling it again to make sure I had certain facts straight. Because I think one company was going to publish this, and then they stopped. And now another has picked it up. It's how I think it happened. And the recent... I won't even use the word incarnation. I won't sully that word with this context. Uh, the, The recent version of it has also... Not just the Constitution, but also the lyrics to the country patriotic song by Lee Greenwood, God Bless the USA. Oh. So this offends me now in two ways, not just as a Christian, but also as an artist. <laughs> so it's uh, troubling to me in many ways. Can you unpack like why, why um, you're troubled by this a little bit? Well, it's a shit song for one thing. Oh, you're gonna have to edit me again. Oh, uh, darn it! I'm sorry. You have to censor uh, my bad words. Okay, we have a great, we have a great tool for that. I now. love that tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'll I'll say a few more swear words <laughs> just so I hear that that choir note. Uh, or is it the pipe organ? Oh, it's like angels. It's singing. an angel singing. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, why does it bother me? The song itself, I find to just be bad poetry. The lyrics are no good. They're simplistic and derivative and if you're gonna put art in the bible you know we mentioned the book of job before potentially the best poetry ever written so you put something of that caliber in there you put les miserables in there you know that's that's wait, art. wait if they put if someone put les mis in like printed it with a bible i would still have problems with it okay. but it would okay. be way better than this okay. <laughs> <laughs> at least 
at least it's got theological depth and merit, and at least it's based in love, and it's not at all based in nationalism. In fact, I would say the subtext of Lame is is an undercutting of any type of nationalism. But that's not what we're here to talk about. The, um, it bothers me because the Constitution and the Bible each on their own carry the weight not only of what they are overtly uh, not only of what is specifically written in them, but also that which they symbolize. When Donald Trump stood in front of that Bible, uh, in front of that church, and held the Bible up in his hand for the photographs, you guys have a smoke in the background, right? Yeah. He wasn't trying to say, "I've read this book," because we all know he hasn't. He was trying to place the power of that symbol onto himself. Right. It was all about this symbolism, which makes it doubly ridiculous that he held it upside down. What are you going to do? He did? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Because, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you won't get into him. Uh, the Constitution. Also, you'll see a lot of people, um, particularly on the campaign trail, holding up their copy of the Constitution. They'll, they'll, they'll pull it out on the Senate floor and be like, I've got my pocket Constitution right here. And they're not trying to say that they've memorized every word. They're just having that symbol to support their argument. You put those two symbols together and it says more than you might intend. They're both, uh, it's like if you take two random elements off the periodic table and just let's see what happens, you put them together, you get an explosion sometimes. You put these two powerful elemental objects together and it's troubling because it links them and it starts to communicate an intention of symmetry or equality between the two. And I don't think there's either. Huh. So you're saying that they both sort of prop each other up. It's, the, it's the, an attempt. And I don't think anyone's trying to say that it would serve the Bible. I think people are trying to make the Bible serve the Constitution by lifting the Constitution up to the level of Scripture. And okay. I think that's, that's heresy. So there's, think, there's a hierarchy here for you. Between scripture and the Constitution? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, a thousand yeah. percent. Scripture is way above. Yeah. Okay. I, and I love the U.S. Constitution. It's awesome. And it is so heavily flawed that we already have a bunch of amendments. You know, and, and just in 200 years, we have all these extra amendments added in even after the first 10. Um, and there are more coming, of course. That's how it's designed. And so to try to put them on the same playing field is silly. It, within our tradition, we consider the words of Scripture to be inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's Spirit was working through those authors to create something that is more than just writing, but is a holy expression. The Constitution is the work of brilliant minds, genius humans, but I don't, I would never make a claim that it was inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you think the forefathers thought maybe God was sort of Part of this part of this process. I don't know. I think it would depend on which of them you spoke right, to. I, I think Thomas Jefferson is more of a deist. You know, the 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 absent watchmaker kind of thing. And so my guess is he would say no. Uh, John Witherspoon is a Presbyterian minister who signed the Declaration of Independence. I think he would have had much more of a divine providence mindset to say we were brought here for such a time as this, to, to go back into the Old Testament there. Um, I think uh, it would depend on who you spoke to. I know nothing about Madison's theology and how that played into the, the first 10 amendments. But uh, all that to say, honestly, I don't know that it matters. I do think, for example, we have God's spirit working through us in all that we do to some way, to some extent, right? I, when I 
look at Van Gogh's artwork. I don't know what his religious beliefs were either, but I see God's glory shining through his work. That's different than saying Starry Night is scripture. And so I, the same with the Constitution. I'm like, wow, you're geniuses, and God apparently gave you some incredible brilliance. But that doesn't mean that what you've written is the same weight to it as the gospel according to Luke. And so your fear of these, I, I kind of want to call it like the, the unstable alchemy of the, of the two. <laughs> I love that phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I love it. it. Alchemy, especially because they're trying to turn the lead of scripture, of the lead of the constitution into the gold of scripture. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so your, your fear is that this unstable alchemy mm-hmm. of, of the constitution placed in the same book as the Bible will kind of lead to this Christian nationalism yes. that will say this is a Christian country and we can't abide by anything else here. But this religion. Yeah. And I don't know that I would say it leads to it so much as it would be part of an ongoing cycle, uh, you know, kind of a, a whirlpool that one leads to the next and it leads back to it again. It's an expression of that. To, and the lyrics of the song are a great example of that. It's, it's got no business being. The song it. threw me. I had no idea about the song. Do you even know that song? I don't really know the song. Yeah. <laughs> don't bother. Okay. <laughs> Like, imagine if you and I were just eating hot dogs and drinking beer, and we took all the words that we could possibly put together with patriotism on a piece of paper, cut it up, rearrange it, and put them out there. That's what it would look like. That, that's the lyrics to that song. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, well. Flags, trucks, <laughs> Jesus, you know, just... Does the song really <laughs> mention Jesus? I don't know. He says, God bless the USA. It might mention Jesus. To, I read the lyrics this morning, and I've already forgotten. Oh that's, my how, gosh. that's how insubstantial this work of not-quite art is. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just for me, like I already feel excluded because the Bible that this is being printed on has the New and, and Old Testament in it. There you go. Yeah, right? it's, so, it's, so, it's a so Christian Bible. For me, Bible. it's easy yeah. to say, well, of course, that's not really my thing. Yeah, not, yeah. Not, part, not for mine. But if someone said, oh, well, now we're printing like a copy of the Torah— with the Constitution on it. That would give me great pause. What do you think we're, what your reaction would be? I, I, yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Here, but here's the, here's just, just the benefit of okay. it is that, like, if I ever want to read the Constitution and I know it's in my Torah, I know where to go in my bookshelf, right? Just go right there, <laughs> open it up. It's easy to find. Yeah, but. That's great. I love that level of But that's like saying, what if I ever want to read Goodnight Moon while I know it's in my cookbook? Like, Why would you put those two together? You have a shelf. You can put lots of books on there. Well, I, I've definitely seen Bibles with like family trees in them, right? You know, so they're already using the Bible as a way to record family trees. That's been a known thing uh, for True. a long time. So, so the Bible has had like a secondary use. But that's because that particular book would be handed down from generation to generation. Uh-huh. It's like an heirloom Bible, I think, was yeah. the intent of that. Yeah. That it's, makes- not, it's not trying to say, oh, my grandma is right there next to Jesus because they're the same. Sure. <laughs> Even sure. Though they both had a beard, but, you know, they were... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I think my only argument would be accessibility. But then again, I, I'm not necessarily coming from this problem of Christian nationalism, right. like you right. are. Uh-huh. Um, I'm coming from this problem that sometimes Jews aren't considered American, right? right? Yep. Uh, and so, you know, in, <laughs> in some weird way, that could solve that problem, right? Of course, I'm American. I've got my Torah. I've got my Constitution, all in one book. <laughs> yeah. Easy to find. Yeah. You know. Um, you know, and, and I do think Christian nationalism makes this topic, it takes it from the silly to the dangerous yeah. from my perspective. Now, yeah. if it were a different book, like I mentioned Good Night Moon, let's imagine they put green eggs and ham in the Bible. <gasps> I would think this is ridiculous nonsense, right? 
Wait, what? <laughs> I, what? I would say it's ridiculous. and ham? No, I love the book. Okay. It okay. would be ridiculous nonsense to bind it up right after the book of Revelation. Right? <laughs> Oh man, that that would be, that's a hard pivot from yeah, from yeah. that. So so it would be silly and stupid to put that in the same volume, but it wouldn't make me upset like this. Okay, it, you know it's the Christian nationalism aspect of it because it's it's it, it really is aspirational to elevate Americanism. Whereas if they put Dr. Seuss in there, it would just be a really odd choice, and I wouldn't purchase it. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this, Matt. Uh, I think I definitely agree with a like a you know a Bible that's a Christian Bible. That's 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 scary stuff to yeah. put those two powers mm-hmm. together. That kind of gives sends this message that this country is based off of Christian values and not based off of you know values that I think our forefathers had yeah. when it came to, to this country. I also believe in separation of church and state. Yeah. Right. And I think that's problematic there as well. Right, mm-hmm. when you make that separation, uh, and the, and yet you also have this Bible with a constitution on it, I think that sort of like yeah, yeah. muddies those waters a bit, mm-hmm. turns into more of a gray area, and so I don't like that either. I think I think it, it would be because of separate church and state is why I would disagree with having the constitution attached to the Torah. Is that what I'm saying? All right, let me pitch a hypothetical to you then, yeah. which probably is not hypothetical somewhere. Um, a copy of the U.S. Constitution. Uh huh. And the front page is the Ten Commandments. Oh. How would you feel about well, that? Well, not good. Why is that? That's, it's no longer a Christian Bible. Yeah, yeah. Because the context is so different, mm-hmm. right? Because the Constitution and the Ten Commandments, they both are like, I would say, well, even guidelines doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when it comes to the Constitution. Because I would say the Ten Commandments are more like these guidelines, like hmm. don't do or then the first five, do these things. Yeah, yeah. Second five, don't do these things. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it. Yeah. Uh, the rest is commentary, as we say in Judaism. Yeah. Um, but uh, but, but it'd be even more complicated to think about, like, because we have 613 commandments. Yeah. And to have that in the Constitution stitched together. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, Matt, I'm going along, I'm, I'm flip-flopping here. Why not? All right, I win. Why not? Why not? There you because, go. Because no, because it's not. If you say say you take the six hundred thirteen commandments, take the take the Constitution, just put it together. Yeah. You don't have a sacred document with just six hundred thirteen commandments. Oh, I thought you were saying you're flip flopping to my side. So no, I was saying no. I win. Oh, I still lose. No, okay. Not, I mean, so like, you're saying that it wouldn't bother you to have the Ten Commandments with the Constitution? I guess not, because okay. you're not necessarily okay. seeing them in a in a sacred light. Gotcha. And then also, you can kind of compare. Though I don't know how yeah. you would compare mm-hmm. the Constitution with the Ten Commandments. I feel like it's comparing apples and oranges, but still, mm-hmm. you can compare. Like this is this is the guideline. This is the, the big takeaway from the Bible when it comes to rules, right? Mm-hmm. You got these ten, and like and here's the Constitution. These are the rules we follow here in this country, right? Yeah. So you put them together, and you got something kind of interesting. But then there's all these problems about like Ten Commandments at courthouses, right? Right. 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 And and that I'm not I'm I, ugh, I'm not comfortable with that. Right, because Why? that because that is starting to meld sort of like church and state, where I would like that to be more separate. Interesting. Yeah. How is it more of a melding than having a printed copy? I guess because it's not; it's just a printed copy and not yeah, like a big a edifice in front of a yeah, a, okay. it's just a print. Yeah, it's just a print copy mm-hmm. put in a shelf somewhere. Uh, and but like having like a, a courthouse, which is an institution for in our country, right? Yeah. Like the courthouse and having Ten Commandments there, I think really. <sighs> 
Now, they would make the case, and when I say they, I mean people who support those things, uh, might make the case to say that our Constitution, like you referred to earlier, is based on Judeo-Christian values. I think they often leave out the Judeo part, but... but yeah, 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 uh, yeah. But, and then the Ten Commandments were sort of a uh, foundational understanding upon which they built the Constitution. Great. Why, I, not, why not just stick the Constitution in the big tablets out there? <laughs> right, I agree. You know? And I don't think that the case has been made from a historical perspective, that that's even true. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. So, eh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But we do... So, one thing I did want to bring up is that our prayer book... Yeah. ...has uh, the Star Spangled Banner yeah. in it, and our prayer book, which is called the Mishkan Tefila, has O Canada in it. Okay. Right? So, like, our prayer book... Is that, like, globally, do you... Are there different versions that oh, have there's the a local, gazillion okay. different prayer books out okay. there. Yeah. But the um, the reform, official reform prayer book, which is called the Mishkan Tefillah, and used by most reform synagogues, they all have the same... It's all the same. Okay. It's all the same book. But, but if you got one in New Zealand, it wouldn't have old Canada in it. The Mishkan Tefillah? Yeah. It's just print. It would. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's they made it, and then they were done. That's sort of baffling to me that you <laughs> yeah. would be in in New Zealand and you would have O Canada. You'd have Star Spangled Banner and O Canada to choose <laughs> okay. from for your national hymn. On second thought, now I love that, and I yeah, think yeah. everyone should sing O Canada at every worship service. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we also have God Bless America in our yeah. in our prayer book as well. Okay. So when it comes to prayer book, it's like a whole different sort of like set of like values. Yeah. Than when it comes to our Bible. So a prayer book, again, we, we talked about the authority of Scripture in the previous sure, thing. Sure. And I, I'm guessing that maybe your prayer book might be similar to our, we have the Book of Common Prayer, but we also have our hymnal, which has songs and, uh, that are printed out, and like 700 of them. And they are very uh, tightly scrutinized from a theological perspective to see what's in and what's out. Each denomination will have their own or even several. And you say, do you want the red hymnal or the blue hymnal? And, and they'll have different aspects to them. But the theology is a big sticking point. And whenever there's a new version that came, comes along, there's always a big fight about it. Like, how dare they get rid of my favorite one? And they put in this new one, which is no good. You, you remember how I was such a snob talking about that Lee Greenwood song? That's what we all do about the new hymnal. Thank goodness. This should, yeah. be, this should be a big argument. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> so is that kind of what your prayer book is like then? Do they get new versions out on occasion? Or Well, first of all, I am super jealous of the hymnal, Matt. Like, we have nothing like that. You can take a copy. Uh, like? uh, sure. <laughs> it's kind of it's Jesus heavy. Helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wish we had, I mean, we, we do have almost, I mean, like, the problem is that we have so old, we mm. have so many traditions that, like, a single blessing or a single prayer could have numerous versions yeah, to sing yeah. in certain ways. And a lot of those are written down in music format. Mm-hmm. We just don't have sort of like the culture of having like a hymnal book along with every prayer book, which is so cool. I wish we did because I feel like half the time our con- every congregation is confused is because, oh, I don't really know what the music for this one is. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but that being said, uh, I have not seen a new pr- – I mean this prayer book that we have um, is updated from a prayer book called The Gates of Prayer. Uh, and it's been, I don't, I'm not sure how old this prayer book is, but almost my entire adult life, it's been this prayer book. Well, the Star Spangled Banner didn't become our national anthem until like the 20s, is that correct? The 1920s? Oh, I have, I have no idea. It's, it it's a relative, 
young. It's pretty young. Yeah. And I would think, oh, Canada's also was within. I mean, obviously within the yeah, last couple yeah, hundred years. Yeah. And so it, your prayer book is is at least that new. I mean, and there's been a few reprintings of it with some slight changes. Yeah. Okay. But I, I don't see any new. I mean, I don't see anything big hmm. changes down the line anytime soon. Huh. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. But we have a whole different prayer book for say high holidays uh-huh. called a, called a mock store. And okay. we just got a new one of those. So like we have different prayer books for different. Yeah. Jewish occasion. In case it wasn't confusing enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. I, yeah. All right. So there, so there that is. So, but, so yeah, but you're right. The prayer books don't necessarily have the same mm, sacred value. And we kind of reverted back to religion 101, talking yeah. about the authorities of things and got yeah. away from the, uh, from the constitution Bible thing. But yeah, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. And yeah. so you have the star spangled banner in your prayer book. It doesn't quite have the same oomph, it's but on it's page 681. Oh, okay. Mishkan Tefillah. Good to know. It's listening. And it's just the first verse. I think it's just the first verse. I have to check again. Because well, I, I believe... Check what the second one was in there. I think there are three verses, and it's either the second or third, that has some real racist statements. Yeah. And and so it, I'd be curious to see how that gets addressed over the passage of time. I mean, uh, this prayer book is incredibly egalitarian, right? It, it uses, like, non-gendered pronouns for okay. God. So uh-huh. my, my hope, my suspi- I didn't double-check, my suspicion is that they wouldn't let that, yeah. they wouldn't let that in there. Sure, sure. So yeah, okay, cool. I think that was that was a that's our. We need like a we need like a a, a sound a, a timer. Bing! All or, right, or, moving or, or a scorecard. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> figure out. What... I think today's big loser is Lee Greenwood. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. So that is uh, that's pop theology, uh, and our next segment where it's relatively new. It's called the religious toolbox. And this segment is sort of designed to help provide, give you, you know, anyone who listens to our podcast tools uh, to manage, I would say, problems that start from a religious kind of, I don't know, nature or uh, origin. Yeah, and it's kind of, you and I tend to agree on a lot of topics, and so it gives us some, a framework to talk about it also to say this is something that's out there in the culture, and maybe you can talk to your neighbors yeah, using yeah. some of this verbiage. So this religious toolbox has a name for this one. It's called counter speech. So Matt and I are going to talk a little bit about counter speech because we have a really serious subject here to discuss. Yeah. Um, and that is in our town, which we you know Matt and I we work in Anchorage. Um, there was some uh, swastikas found around our town. And to, uh, there were like stickers that yeah. were put up uh, that kind of vandalized various buildings. I was aware of three of those, and you told me today you think it's up to seven now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They said yeah. I think, uh, so you know this is of course. This is problematic, yeah. right? And uh, and this has been a problem us Jews have faced for a long time. So you know we we kind of we kind of have like a, a way of, of working with this, of, of managing this problem. Um, and this is a problem that Anchorage has had also before, like uh, a few I think maybe it was a few months ago, six months ago. It was winter time for sure. Yeah, yeah, we discovered that there was a license plate that said Three Reich. And um, another one that said Fuhrer. And another one that said Fuhrer. And we were a little upset that, that yeah. the DMV would be able to provide these license plates and they weren't like on the list of non, you know, mm-hmm. non-appropriate license plates. Um, and, that, and there's all this argument about First Amendment, and I don't necessarily want to get into that in this conversation. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about the value and importance of counter-speech and what that is. Um, this is what we do when we see this, when we see a problem like this occur in our do you, neighborhood. Do you have a working definition for counter speech? Well, so let me kind of give you the history of it, right? Okay. So essentially, um, this was this this term essentially was developed in 1927 uh, from a legal opinion by Justice Louis Brandeis, uh, and it, and and so it's used instead 
of government censorship, right? So mm-hmm. we don't what we don't want to do. It, the First Amendment rights are so important. We don't want to do is censor people just because what they say isn't liked, or even even if it's hateful, we still don't want to censor it, mm-hmm. right? That's that that is that we're protected by the First Amendment from that. So the the, the better thing to do is to, is to counter it with something else, something more positive, a speech, uh, something more educational speech, right? Mm-hmm. To not Silence is like the worst thing that you can do yeah. when it comes to people using hate speech. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. censorship is not is definitely not good either. So, right. And when you discuss? say censorship, I just want to make sure we're clear. That's government censorship. Yes, it does not include things such as if Facebook deletes right. a post for right. uh, post for being. That's awful. not what when I when I'm referring to censorship, I'm referring to just the First Amendment understanding yeah. of censorship. Governmental censorship is not uh, does not really work from right. historically we've discovered. Mm-hmm. So counter speech is sort of the tool that we have to to counter hate speech. Yeah, and what counter speech really really is is just you know normally it's me, but it's community members saying, "Hey, we see this hate, and we want to tell you that this hate leads to problems." Yeah, or we want to tell you that hey, we have compassion. You know, we just we don't what we don't want to do is have that hate hang up there and have no one respond to it in in, in any kind of way, because um, that emboldens and enables others yeah. to also um, say hateful things or do hateful things as well. And I would uh, I would presume that one of the goals of putting those stickers up, um, they included the text, we are everywhere. Yeah. And I would presume that one of those goals is similar to the, the march that was in Charlottesville years ago, um, was uh, to centralize it, to normalize that type of hate. Yeah. And our counter speech can keep that kind of hatefulness. At, at, at least it can keep it on the... Uh, perimeter can keep right, it out right. of the center. And, and what's really valuable, you know, of, of course, I personally, I counter a lot, some mm-hmm. things that are hateful. Yeah. Um, I work really hard on that. But when someone who's not Jewish, who's a leader says, this is horrible, that's so valuable too, mm-hmm. right? To have, to have hate being countered, not just by the people that the hate is going towards or, or designed to, you know, to silence, if you will, mm-hmm. but, the, but to have other people out there say this is not okay is, is a huge, makes a huge difference yeah. and is a really valuable component of counter speech. Yeah, yeah. So that would include, for example, with these swastikas, uh, members of the Christian church should be vocal at this point and, and secular entities should be vocal at this point. Right, too. right. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the problematic nature of government-sponsored censorship. Yes, yeah. Do you feel that there is uh, a responsibility for government elected officials to at least voice opposition to that kind of hate speech? I, I absolutely do. Right. You know, I'm not saying that government officials should arrest people. Uh-huh. That's not what I'm saying. Right. What I'm saying is that they should be vocal back. They, yeah. should, they, they should say I'm, you know, for example, when it comes to swastika, mm-hmm. that I am disgusted by this mm-hmm. or I feel shame this happened in our city. This shouldn't happen here. Yeah. Right. They're providing a counter speech mm-hmm. to the hate speech that's occurring. I think that's incredibly valuable and important in our society. So I think I, I agree that it's super important for elected officials to speak out that way. And then conversely, I think it's really Harmful when you have, for example, after the Charlottesville march and murder, that the president at that point said, well, there are good people on both sides. Yeah. And here in town with a license plate, one of our elected officials tried to say, like, well, maybe three right, it just means a ruler. It tried to sort of soften 
the hate that was present in those license plates. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's dangerous. There's um, the reason why you don't you don't want to censor hate speech is because you can't. Because what will yeah. happen is that it'll become coded, mm-hmm. and and so we're already sensing that kind of code already, right? When someone says, "Well, there's good things on both sides," it's a coded language, right? Saying that I actually I support the hate speech, mm-hmm. right? When someone says, "This isn't as bad as you think," right? Let me soften it for you. Yeah, that is that's a support. That's a coded support mm-hmm. of it, uh, and 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 I think uh, th- those. Statements of coded support, I think sometimes the person speaking them might not even be aware they're doing it. Do you think that's is that giving them too much so credit? I, I think it's even I think it's even more innocent than that sometimes. I okay. think it's really innocent. Like, you know, for example, I heard a, when um, these swastikas came up, I heard a lot of people say, oh, it's probably just some kids. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's not I, w- I wouldn't call that coded or anything like that. Uh-huh. But I also wouldn't let the swastikas be devalued by the by who put them up. Yeah. Right. Because mm-hmm. they're enabling hate no matter who put them up. Right. Right. So 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 like, you know, it's not even like I would say I would say this this level of like code of speech can go from being very pernicious and very like specific. To There's being, there are certain real dog whistles that, you yeah, know, yeah. They, they intended to, to be, say a racist thing. They just chose their words. carefully. Right. Right. To being very, very yeah. innocent. People just saying that to think oh, it's mm-hmm. probably not that bad. Right. But not realizing they're also probably diminishing this problem when it shouldn't be diminished. Yeah. Right. It's still yeah. a huge problem problem for us people who feel you know this hate yeah and so i think that like people that do code their language Mm -hmm. in a a specific way is hurtful and more hurtful than silence yeah right to to not respond at all Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's well two things i'll talk about one one is that i think it's important to pick your battles too because yesterday on my commute home i was behind a a truck that in their rear mirror had a giant decal, uh, rear window, I mean, had a gigantic decal of a skull and it was within the Nazi iron cross. Yeah. Yeah. But that, but that, I mean, like, I, I mean, at, at people's bumpers is a, is a first amendment free for all, right? Yeah. And I wouldn't try yeah. to outlaw it, but I did think about getting in front of that car and going real slow. <laughs> <laughs> And because, I thought, well, you don't want to necessarily, you know, cause a fight on the side of the road. And so I just let it go. But then I wondered to myself, obviously, that's not an issue. That's not a moment to choose. Yeah. But you, there's always this strange tension like, OK, it's it's my great great grandpa at Thanksgiving said something anti-Semitic. Did he even understand it was? And is this the moment to choose? Uh, you know, yeah, it's hard. It's speak, hard to know. That's when you speak up. Yeah. When your mm-hmm. great grandfather says something anti-Semitic. Yeah. You say something. Mm-hmm. You don't let it hang there. Nice. You don't. You don't be silent about that. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And that's and from the, the religious toolbox point of view, I think that's where the rubber hits the road most often. Most yeah. of the people having these interactions are not elected officials or public speakers sure. or what have you, but they will at the dinner table be across the table from someone who just casually drops in a racist joke or a trope of some sort. And what I think is more helpful than not is to just very clearly address the statement, but not the person. So don't say you're such a racist because that becomes a whole self-defense fight. But you can say that term you just used is really hurtful to people. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you're arguing about the term and not the person who used it, and that that's a that's more of an open door. I, yeah, I think it's a really yeah. valid way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like I would say casual racism, casual anti-Semitism out there. Yeah, I'd say it's important to counter it. Mm-hmm. You know, and but you're right. Like, don't don't judge the person. 
yeah. they may not realize or understand fully what they're saying or doing, or maybe they are, but they're just not. They're in a new context and they're not used to being countered. But, right. Yeah. So something else that's important too is that like a lot of people aren't used to being countered. Like that's that's why it can be such a valuable tool. Is that when you say, hey, you know that what you said. I mean, what was said hurt my feelings, or I have friends who would really hurt them. Yeah. I think it's really unfortunate. You know, that might be the first time someone someone actually pushed back. Right. On, on, yeah, yeah. On that kind of language, it might actually teach the speaker to find a better path, but also one one way that that's helpful, the counter speech. You know, and even the word counter, there are two ways to think about that. Counter could mean you push back on the person. It could also mean you provide an alternative. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And so frequently I'll see this on social media where someone will say something racist, and my first response is to comment on that comment, but instead you just put a brand new one yeah, that offers a fresh so, perspective. Yeah, social media, always, I mean, social media is great, right? Yeah. Because it often does this. Like, you'll, you'll, you'll see something horrible on there. Instantly, the responses are countering it. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so social media mm-hmm. kind of counters itself mm-hmm. in some ways. I mean, yeah. I have my problems with it as well. But, like, but you, when you see sort of that platform, you can see counter speech almost in every example of someone saying something yeah. that, that's, you know, hateful. And I think one of the benefits of that, and it's, it carries over just as much in at the dinner table, you know, in in-person interactions. And I think one of, a good example is um, for LGBTQ people, if you're at a gathering of 20 people, percentage-wise, probably someone there is gay. Yeah. And if someone uses a homophobic slur and you say to them, I preferred if you not say that, somewhere in that crowd, unbeknownst to us, is someone who appreciated it. Yeah. And, and it didn't have to be an argument and you didn't have to convince the person who said it of anything. It, the comment wasn't for the speaker. Yeah. The comment was for one of the listeners and you don't even know who. Right. Right. That's, and that's why I said earlier, it's really important that, that like, like elected officials or people who are not being directed towards that hate, yeah. but still speak up for those, those, those groups is really valuable and important. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of times that's not anticipated that when you direct hate at someone, someone else over here says, hey, don't do that. Right. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. And that's a really, it's a really valuable tool mm-hmm. in, the, in sort of the religious toolbox. And you're totally right. When, some, when someone does speak up against someone else, that someone is probably protecting not only a lot of other people at that moment, but if they change that person's mind about saying these things in public, mm-hmm. they're also protecting a bunch of future people right. from having to hear hateful speech. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But, it's, but it requires bravery, Matt. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's the worst part is that I don't like being confrontational. Right. Not many people do. Yeah. And it's hard to say, to speak up. When, it's easier not to say anything at all. Just let the moment pass mm-hmm. and, uh, and let it go. And, and I have to say that like that's I, – I totally understand why anyone wants to do that because it's, it's like that's not necessarily an argument you ever want to get into. Yeah. Um, and so I just want to say that anyone that has done it, I really appreciate your bravery. I think that's a great way to phrase it, just to, to encourage people into their courage uh, yeah. to, to stand up for it. And, and again, speaking from my um, centralized position, I've said this before on the podcast, that I, I am a white, male, heterosexual American Christian. I'm and, all those things except, except right, for Judy. Except, right. And yeah, so yeah. on the privilege bingo sheet, I've, yeah, I, yeah, I was, both, I was dealt a winning card. Pretty privileged. Yeah. And so for anyone else out there who is in a similarly comfortable position, our level of risk is so much lower than if a person of color were to stand up in a crowd and be the the voice in opposition to whatever is being said, it's going to socially probably carry heavier costs for them. And so it's our duty and responsibility to say, all right, we'll, we'll say the right thing here because, because that's, that's what you do with privilege. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, well, there you go. So that's sort of our, our quick, our quick. Uh, we fixed it. Religious toolbox on counter speech. Yeah. Um, once again, I encourage you to utilize it in public spheres, but also around the dinner table. Uh, and you have my personal thanks <laughs> if you're brave enough to do so. Nice. All right. Well, I think that concludes our, uh, our I podcast. I think it does. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, anyways, I want to give a big thanks to the Mutual Brothers for their musical and kind of technical help um, and James Brown for our awesome logo. Uh, and you can see Matt and I, uh, in li- or I guess, live you in can. action. Yeah. Matt, I think you can, go- can you come to your church now? You can actually come to our church now. Our rules change weekly. Uh, yeah, so yeah. it's hard to say exactly what you'll encounter when you get here. Our current rules are that it's open to everyone. You have to wear a mask. You have to socially distance. There's no singing yet. Um, That might change by the time this goes out into the public. I don't know. Um, We simply have no way to know or enforce if anyone is vaccinated. And so we've dropped that requirement. But I will say from a personal standpoint, I require it. (laughs) If you're going to try to break that rule, you can. No one's checking. But um, for the love of God and your fellow humans, get vaccinated. Please, please, please. please do. And we're still online for a little while longer. Uh Um, And so you can find us at frozenchosen.org. And also we have uh, Best Shalom Alaska is our Facebook And I do want to say, even though we are meeting in person in that manner, we're also still online and... I know for us that's going to be permanent yeah, now. At the same yeah. time, I'm sure it's for you. Yeah. Even even when we are fully reopened, the online aspect will still be there. And I'll, I'll send a shout out of thanks also. Scott Groon is a member of our church who has been our technological wizard in getting all that online stuff to work. So uh, big thank you to him. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening and take care. Bye. <laughs>